I've had the pleasure of speaking with Kimberly Berlin today for the last two hours to pick her brain about addiction treatment. If you've been here, you know that I have a deep interest in addiction treatment, mental health, health and wellness in general, nutrition, the things of that nature. We talked about so many things, her experience in working with uh, large facilities that deal with addiction treatment. We talk about uh, her experience with the system in itself and the obvious failure rate. And we talk about IFS, which is a newer model that's being introduced in very few places across the country. I mean, very few, but the most important is we dive into some of the intricacies and the finer details of what addiction is and how we understand it, how it's plaguing society, what we ought to do about educating people properly, and so much more. Welcome to the channel. Today's daily is brought to you by grassdoor.com. Cannabis delivery made simple. Save 40% today when you use the code daily at checkout. There's more links down below if you want to help support the channel. Just know it means the world to me. Well, you know what? I, um, I'm i so very grateful we made this happen. I've been thinking about you ever since the first conversation that we had. And um, there's there's so many questions and there's so many like uh, curiosities of mine of like how you're approaching your work and Many of the things that you had said to me uh, when we first spoke, uh, just your realizations, what you had experienced in the professional uh, world of uh, addiction treatment and how you know it could be done better. But yet uh, there are few who want to even try. Yeah. But, you, but you did mention you found a, um, a group in Connecticut that is attempting something different. Is that right? Yeah. Yes, and I'm very excited about it. I've had the honor of um, uh, going up to Connecticut uh, for the first of um, multi-part training. Um, I'm just uh, an assistant. Um, the actual trainers are seasoned uh, IFS therapists. This is the model that Richard Schwartz developed about 40 years ago. And... Um, uh, the the, the uh, treatment center is called High Watch and um, in Kent, Connecticut. And the remarkable thing about it is that um, back in 1937, um, the founders of Alcoholics Anonymous were uh, and the owners of the land and the person who is living and tending to the land all sort of found each other in a series of coincidences, I'm going to say. And the next thing you know, um, the land was donated to Alcoholics Anonymous and a very um, uh, small and humble beginning of treatment began at High Watch in 1939. It is still going today. And it is um, uh, remarkable for a lot of different reasons, the least of which is that um, everyone there lives the 12 steps, um, but particularly step number 12, which is to be of service. And um, you can really feel sort of a spiritual energy uh, in the area. Um, so they are, uh, they have been doing a remarkable job of helping people. Um, and they are bringing in a new approach, uh, a different approach to treatment. Uh, that other treatment centers have not or are not using. Um, my hope is that they will in the future. 
Um, and this approach looks at addiction very differently. It doesn't, um, it, it does not assign blame or guilt or shame or judgment, but rather um, it sort of asks the question, what is the pain, right? Not why are you an addict or why are you an alcoholic, but what is the pain? Where Where is the pain? And from there, um, pursue an exploration of our interior world and the different causes and conditions that created um, what became or is now, you know, a, a problem. So internal family systems, known as IFS, um, is really a groundbreaking approach. And the fact that High Watch is attending to this has, has made a commitment to train the staff in this model is exciting. I think it's groundbreaking. Um, I really do think it's history in the making. So um, I'm, as I said, so honored and grateful to even be a part of this. Um, and yeah, so there, there's one example of hope. <laughs> yeah. How did yeah. you become a part of it? Were you invited? Um, I actually, yes and no. Um, so I've been pursuing IFS as a treatment modality and have consistently gone through the, the different levels of trainings um, and applications. Um, and uh, I applied to become a program assistant um, not long ago, uh, earlier this year, and was accepted, which was very exciting. And um met uh, people there who are really doing remarkable things. And thankfully, my ratings were good <laughs> from the attendees. And um, I was alerted to this opportunity in Connecticut. And it just so happened that the assistant trainer had been the assistant trainer in the other um, uh, 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 training. And I had just completed level three, which is the top level that you can go through uh, in IFS. And the person who did level three was the trainer. So it sort of all came together in a synchronous moment. And I was accepted, which was, again, really humbling um, and exciting. Um, the team is just, I can't really describe it other than there is a connection between all of us um, that is remarkable, that is exciting, that is joyful, trusting. Um, and this is sort of what IFS does as a model. It creates that container. Um, so that's how I got into it. Um, and I keep applying for more PA positions. My hope and dream is one day, someday that I could uh, join the ranks of an assistant trainer um, and and be able to teach this model, which I really, um, I believe in it and I'm dedicated to it. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, compared to the older models, um, how, how, would, how would you compare it? You, you want to teach this to uh, anybody willing to kind of adopt it. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, like we spoke in our previous conversation, the, uh, the, some of the biggest issues with addiction recovery services is that they're profit motivated. And so there's very little um, incentive for them to actually help people recover. Mm. Uh, and so I guess that's like a two part question, like how being that they are profit motivated, what is the system they're using now and how would we incentivize them to adopt a model that would in fact be able to, 
um, help individuals reach that goal of uh, the ultimate sobriety with the proper education uh, and living a healthy, meaningful life. Uh, being more fulfilled and things of that nature. So what's the, what's this older model look like and how do we incentivize them to adopt it? Well, the, uh, so a couple things on the, uh, the older model, if you will, um, uh, uses cognitive behavioral therapy, which um, in a nutshell um, uh, seeks to to change one's thinking. If we can change our thinking, then we can change our behavior, right? Um, and at the time, that was a revolutionary idea, and um, uh, and became very very popular. Um, when it comes to addiction, however. Um, that's not always the the um, most helpful way to uh, to treat or help someone who's addicted to alcohol or substances um, because uh, our our brain has been affected uh, by substances and has changed has shifted and changed. So the approach of think it differently and then you'll behave it differently is not always easy for an individual to adopt because their thinking hasn't healed yet, right? Um, so there's that aspect to it. The for-profit aspect has a sort of a double-edged sword. On the one hand, they want to get people through as, as many people through as they can because insurance companies are paying for it or they're not taking insurance and it's, you know, a, what I call the full boat cost, right? Um, but it's very costly. Very costly, right. Um, very. Um, but on the other hand, they cannot report that they don't have a certain amount of success, right? They have to be able to report they have success. And in my experience with uh, with treatment centers, whether inpatient or outpatient, that aspect of programming tends to be very weak. The you know you 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 have individuals who go through the program and they leave. Now you're going to do a follow up six weeks later. How are you doing? I'm fine. Eight weeks or 10, 10 weeks or six months later, you can't find them they've moved or they've changed their phone or they've relapsed, right? So that's an aspect that's very difficult to track. But what we have been able to, and you know, we meaning the research community, the recovery community has been able to ascertain is that the relapse rates are still very high, really high, higher than they should be given everything we're throwing at it. So it begs the question, what are we doing? Well, we've been doing the same thing for a long time, a long time. Um, we left the age of ice baths and frontal lobotomies and electroshock therapy, thank God, right? And putting people into asylums, we, 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 we left that. We became more humanistic, if you will. But in, the in, but in that process, 
behavioralism became sort of the flavor of approach, the flavor of the day, the month, but it it ended landing and, and sticking. Not there's nothing wrong with CBT. There's nothing wrong with a lot of the of the therapies, but I'm not so sure it's helpful when it comes to addiction addictive processes. So when you look at um, research that's been done by people like Basil Vanderkoop, Daniel Siegel, Gabor Mate, um, and a host of others, there's another way to approach that healing, which goes into the inside. And certainly IFS is, in my opinion, the way, the, the doorway into the inside where we hold the trauma, the anxiety, the memories, etc., and where we can begin to heal and unburden those traumas. Now, once we start unburdening and giving our the parts within us that are holding that pain an opportunity to release the pain, the shift is really remarkable. It's subtle. It's not like a two by four. It's a very subtle energy shift but it's a long lasting shift, long lasting. So clients who I've worked with uh, using IFS might've had a struggle at first. Maybe they relapsed a couple, two, three times. Maybe they really, you know, didn't know if they for certain, if this is, you know, should I really go completely sober, hundred percent abstinent? I don't know, can I have one drink with dinner, you know, every now and then? They struggled, but see, IFS holds that that's the system trying to navigate. If I had been in a traditional treatment center, I would have come down very heavy on the client and said, oh, no, you can't do that. It's abstinence and that's it. This sort of tends to be a very heavy handedness with traditional treatment approaches um, of it's this way or no other way. And what will occur is what I call the, the digging the heel in kind of resistance of don't tell me what I'm going to do and not do. Right? <laughs> I'm not going to, wait a minute, you know, I'm a grown ass person here, you know? Yeah. yeah. And um, so there's automatically a backlash, right? And then we label that person resistant. Okay, now we're off to a not very positive start. We're not recognizing that the individual has parts of them that are not so sure about this, that are afraid, that don't want to perhaps make that commitment, or there's something else going on. So IFS really gives the individual an opportunity to examine that without judgment, without agenda, without stigma, without shame or blame um, and allows the person to find their own way in their own time. Right. And so subsequently clients of mine who, you know, resisted uh, at the beginning are now enjoying three, four, five years of sobriety. That's a very good statistic. Right. Um, that's a really good statistic. So um, it, you know, it really begs the question, well, if, if we're having recidivism or relapse rates at 60% and higher, why aren't we choosing to try something else? So it comes down to that. Uh, lastly, I think it's important to know that in the 
traditional um, uh, treatment approaches, um, you know, there, there's very much a top-down organizational structure, right? You have the CEO, executive director, director of program, director of clinical, direct. it's very top-down. What I found to be particularly inspiring about HiWatch is it's a lateral organization. There is no top-down because in AA, there are no leaders, right? We, we are but trusted servants. That's it. And each one does their job. Everybody has a job to do or a role to play, but there's none of this you know, top-down kind of heavy-handedness that we find in traditional organizations. So I think also the other aspect of it is for-profit or non-profit, if we look at a different approach to the organization, more lateral, right, more equal, if you will, um, I think we'd find a lot less uh, rancor and dissatisfaction among staff and more productivity in the sense of uh, staff members, therapists, clinicians, nurses, what have you, really being committed to their work as opposed to feeling like, oh, if I don't do it this way, I'm going to get written up, right? And that's the last thing that we want, you know, in terms of a, a thriving organization. You don't want people walking around in fear that you're going to be written up if something goes wrong. Yeah. And that makes sense. I mean, uh, they're there. Uh, an individual who's doing this work is there to help people. And um, you mentioned something the last time we spoke about uh, something very similar, a very similar circumstance that had happened to you where you were working and you were kind of appalled and um, un just felt really uncertain as to how to approach the situation. If I'm remembering correctly, based on that last conversation. I muted myself because my generator just decided to go off. It's okay. I, can you hear it in the background? Is it making a noise? I I actually don't know. I actually don't hear anything. All um, right. Yeah, That's I don't. All right. Um, yes. So uh, my own experience, strength, and hope, or I call it the ESH, <laughs> um, I worked in the treatment field for some time. And as I mentioned to you in our last conversation, um, I worked um, inpatient in a hospital, uh, intensive outpatient uh, treatment in a hospital. Um, and then I also worked in a methadone clinic. And um, a very different model, if you will, a very different population. Most of the individuals, if not all, who came to the clinic were either addicted to heroin or variations on the theme of opioids. So the methadone um, was a replacement, if you will, for heroin or any of the opiates. And the idea is that we taper them off until they can live, you know, really healthy and productive lives. So, um, I came up with the idea, which the staff all applauded, that maybe what we could do was to offer um, Narcotics Anonymous 12-step meetings in the facility so that while people were waiting for their appointments, 
And usually it was a good 40 minute wait. There were a lot of people coming in very early in the morning to get their to get to get their to get replacement the, the methadone yeah, yeah exactly get their doses right maybe they could you know avail themselves of a shortened narcotics anonymous meeting and i floated the idea with staff they thought it was a great idea and so i went ahead and you know started putting all the pieces into place and um was absolutely ripped to shreds by leadership. Leadership being five states away, <laughs> up a corporate ladder, um, that really I don't think had any idea um, of the actual population in terms of face-to-face, -face, you know. Um, so I was told no uncertain terms, no, you don't do that. No, no, we don't do NA in the methadone clinic. We don't offer that kind of thing. You're stepping over the bounds and this is not to be done. And it wasn't the first time I got myself in trouble <laughs> in treatment centers. Um, another example was um, helping um, clients to learn how to meditate, breathe, engage in spiritual practices because we know that spiritual practices heal the brain that was frowned upon because oh no 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 no! this is a hospital setting and we don't go in for that so you're going to stop that right away no teaching the meditation which calms the nervous system no teaching them breath techniques which which calms the sympathetic nervous system uh, and helps production of dopamine no talking to them about you know prayer even though it's not religious uh, just uh, gratitude expressions of gratitude and no talking to them about any other uh, like yoga <laughs> tai chi or any kind of out of the box uh, body movement that could help the body recover and, you know, over time, I put in my dues, I put in my time, my, my hours, what have you. And it got to the point where, honestly, Mike, it was just not worth it for me. And I just said, you know what, I'm going to go into private practice. And from the first day that I went into private practice, I put forth a whole new approach right, with clients. We did yoga in sessions. We, I taught uh, clients to meditate, to breathe, to um, explore their spiritual orientation, atheist, agnostic, it didn't matter, explore it nonetheless, um, and connect to that, right, connect to whatever would make them feel good inside, along with the therapeutic modalities. And in very short order, it became predominantly and primarily IFS. So, you know, I know that treatment centers today are a little bit more flexible. They bring in a bit more of the spiritual aspects, a bit more trauma-informed, but it still has a long way to go, in my opinion. And that's not to take away from the efforts, right? But it is to say that after so much time, at a certain point, we've got to look at what are we doing here that isn't helping and that isn't changing, right? It's an enormous problem. So, yeah.
Yeah, I have to agree. It is an enormous problem. I mean, I've dedicated uh, nearly 10 years of just uh, researching and learning about this from from our previous conversations, like, you know, my past and uh, the addictions I went through and um, and being in the business that I'm in, I run into a lot of people dealing with addictions uh, and these struggles are uh, they vary so much the 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 degrees are so vast they can be extreme they could be mild and the substances can vary uh quite a bit too and we talked in great deal about that it's uh we're talking in this very moment some of the harshest and most extreme substances that are very very destructive but um and, and that's in the like in the immediate term in the uh, in the medium to long term, we see other problems, the food addictions, the entertainment addictions, the uh, the list is quite long now in where people turn to seek comfort from. And this is something that we talked about. We we had some we were vibing on this particular yeah. area quite a bit. Uh, and I agree that, you know, w- when you're. When you're dealing with um, executives very high up uh, within a corporate structure and they're not really present. They have no clue as to what's going on. They just know that, you know, certain policies of their corporate um, uh, structure are being ignored or broken and they just won't have it. Perhaps it has sometimes, sometimes it may have something to do with uh, their own insurance coverage, right? Certain language um, in those underwriting documents that say like, okay, you can do this, but you can't do this as a particular company of whatever it is that you do. Uh, So these layers are uh, quite deep. There's much that we don't know as to what holds people back. Um, And I think it's surprising. It would surprise a lot of people. If you tried to start an addiction recovery treatment center tomorrow, uh, you would be really surprised as to how many hoops you're jumping through the you know the legal ramifications the permits that you'll need from your state and localities and then trying to get insurance and they're going to have requirements so like as a from a business perspective mm-hmm. there's there's a lot to unpack there and it's uh and uh and that's what's tough in order to be able to provide treatment to people um, it comes in the form of a business model because it needs to be funded. It needs to generate money to pay for a lot of the things. Um, and it's, uh, and over time, I think naturally it becomes a model for profit because they see that, okay, relapse rates are high. Um, and yes, maybe the system isn't working, but it works for some, but it's making everybody wealthy who's involved. So they, they're like, we don't want to change a thing, you know, <laughs> right. it's, it's, wor- it's working for us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. And historically, you know, um, historically, uh, you know, some of the states uh, uh, that, you know, it got got on the bandwagon ended up getting themselves into very, very serious trouble because of just that, you know. Um, There were so many unethical and really illegal practices going on. And um, particularly like in a state like in Florida, treatment centers were just shut down left, right and center because um, it it got to be criminal, right? A lot of criminal behavior. So um, thankfully that's gotten cleaned up 
over the course of, of several years now, more, about a decade now. It's really cleaned up. But you're right, you know, just trying to get permitting or approvals or anything like that, legalities, right? Um, huge hurdles. But um, it it is done. Uh, it takes a lot of money. Um, but I think that, um, again, in my opinion, uh, there you, you still have to have the money, you still have to have the buildings, you still have to have the land and the staff, right? You've got to be able to pay your staff and feed people, etc. But why not introduce a different approach? You know, um, why not try something that actually might work? Um, because in, in my world, what's the best that could happen? The best that could happen is people could get well, Right. And in getting well, they could become the ambassadors of your treatment center. Look, this is what that treatment center looks like. This is how you can yeah. do it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, the representation of like yeah, the it, Yeah. You know, I'm I'm an alum of this place and look how wonderful I've turned out. Right. So the, it's a different way of looking at things and thinking about things. But you know, if someone graduates from a program and it really has changed their life you've got a dedicated walking ad you know for, <laughs> for success um but you know if it was so so experience or there was a lot of shame or the trauma wasn't addressed or all of the different aspects of of what so many people experience then you know they're not going to want to take that phone call from the alumni office or the follow up office to you know how are you doing eh you know, right? So it's there's a there's a underlying human kind of connection as well that I think we can also make and 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 support in in a newer treatment model. So yeah, uh, I think uh, I think it's time, and you're absolutely right that uh, when you've been you know the definition of insanity so we've been doing this a long time it's decades and you know the substances have evolved the yeah. uh the reasons for for it have changed a great deal uh so you know why not explore something that even if it doesn't work um but you have to experiment that's kind of what science is um you have to experiment in order to discover new approaches and you take what's good, you leave what's not, and you continue to evolve it. Um, that is that is the scientific method in in a nutshell. So, um, but I understand why change is so difficult. There's all these; it's multifaceted. Why we may not see uh, an immediate adoption of something that uh, uh, that could have potential, you know. There's always reasons. There's always going to be some kind of objections, either from the corporate ladder and executives or from insurance companies and et cetera. I've been thinking a great deal about uh, something you said earlier. So there's this focus on uh, addiction, primarily from the uh, the viewpoint of trauma and like why uh, someone may be leaning towards substance abuse, seeking comfort from something. Um, and the, uh, general idea is it could be from trauma, something, wh whatever that pain may be. Uh, and, but then I also think about 
individuals who may not have any trauma, right? They could they could have been raised really well, had both parents in the picture, but you know, maybe hanging around with the wrong friends and all of a sudden uh get introduced to some substance that they just happen to like. Mm-hmm. And, and 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 that has nothing to do with any type of abuse they went through or trauma that they went through. It's just this human nature of like um seeking that comfort, finding that comfort, exploring it. Uh, determining if you like it enough, whatever that type of stimulation is, and then you go for that stimulation again and again. And mm. from from the knowledge that I have, and the the research I've done, and the experiences I've had, I I have this understanding that certainly um, our brain chemistry, our body's chemistry, react to these things for a reason. So we're you know our our biology is made up this way. We experience stimulation of all types from all kinds of things. It could be substances, it could be experiences, it could be human connection, it could be a lot of things. And there's always some form of chemical reaction that occurs in the brain and the body when um, when experimenting with these things. So uh, this is uh, kind of a divide here, and I've been thinking about it for some time as to the trauma part we get for the for the most part we understand like that that could be a root cause there's something there for sure um why somebody masks pain by just seeking comfort from a substance it uh it pulls them away we call it escapism and there's many other ways to describe it uh but then what would the other side be called could mm-hmm. could we consider it boredom <laughs> mm interesting yeah interesting right so yeah um you know um you have a good point um on several levels um and so if we look at um from alpha to omega if we look at an individual that is raised in a in a home where there's a lot of chaos or screaming or divorce or beatings or what have you right you know, flashing lights, uh, blue lights, you know, when you're three and woken up in the middle of the night, you know, that leaves an imprint on your brain. Um, Or we have a very perfectly fine home life. Um, It's just that the parents aren't exactly happy. They don't appear outwardly to be unhappy. But there is a tension, right? And little children pick up on that tension. They pick it up like like they breathe it in, you know, and it goes into their body. And so they grow up with this dis-ease, right? Or we have a family that is perfectly happy, right? But maybe there are external forces, like you were saying, kids that are in the neighborhood who might be into, oh, let's smoke some pot or, hey, I got some Coke, let's try this, right? And the kid wants to fit in, right? And so they go along with it and now we're off to the races because those young, not yet formed brains are hit with a substance that Ultimately, the brain will tell it again, again, do it again, right? And that's how that starts. 
And then we've got the omega of boredom, right? What's so interesting, Mike, is that even pre-COVID, we were seeing such a technological revolution without control that kids were sitting at tables, having lunch with each other like this. <laughs> they would be texting each other instead of having a conversation, communicating. Words and language has changed because of texting and this like dissipation of verbal communication with another human being. And then we came into COVID. Kids were isolated, taken out of schools. They were at home. They couldn't see their friends. And everything took place on this machine, this little unit, or the laptop, or the desktop. But these are young, developing minds. And the isolation created not only boredom, but the highest rates of anxiety and depression that we have ever seen in adolescence in the history of taking that data. Highest levels. Suicide rates have gone through the roof with the age with teenagers, teen groups, right? And overdoses. Uh, there was just a report from the CDC, I think it was just a couple, two, three days ago, that overdoses have now hit the all-time high in the teenage years, and particularly from fentanyl, right? So is it trauma? Is it boredom, right? Is it seeking to fit in? Is it wanting to soothe? Or we have a whole other aspect, which is some, some, quite a few of my clients have ADD or ADHD, right? And that caught, or they're on the autism spectrum. And that causes, so they have a neurological condition that causes a certain level of anxiety. And it's natural for the body, the brain to want to soothe, right? So, um, and yet when we look at the, the data, the research, why is it that broad swaths of teenagers are not getting into drugs? are not depressed, are not anxious or suicidal. So there's this remarkable researcher by the name of uh, Lisa Miller, PhD, um, out of Columbia University. And she wrote a book called The Awakened Brain. And um, uh, I had the honor of meeting her and she uh, uh, was the keynote speaker at a conference I was speaking at earlier this spring. And I can't quote all of the exact numbers and, and data because I don't have it in front of me, but the numbers literally were upside down. For the COVID cohort of depressive, anxious, drug using, soothing, seeking soothing, right? The opposite is, was true of a larger cohort of teenagers who had one thing that really kept them grounded, and that was spirituality. Those teenagers who had a sense of spiritual purpose, placement, didn't doesn't mean religion, spirituality, um, had 
markedly decreased anxiety, depression, or suicidality. So those kind of, that, that starts to ask a question, what have we taken away from our culture, right? That is causing so much agitation and lack of meaning and purpose. And this other cohort has meaning, has purpose, and they're not experiencing that the what their their colleagues or their peers are experiencing on this end of the spectrum. So I'll leave it at that. It's very fascinating. I'll probably dive into that research, see if I can find anything. Yeah. Oh, um, you would find a lot. Um, the book is, uh, it is The Awakened Brain by Lisa Miller. And I can only tell you that the statistics are absolutely extraordinary. Um, uh, in fact, um, for uh, young people uh, who had a spiritual orientation, um, by age 26, so from teens to, to mid-20s, um, had 75% less likelihood of be of major depression in their lifespan. Uh, the protective benefit was spirituality. Um, and there was a 90% protective benefit. In other words, 90% of the cohort who are involved with spiritual practices or spiritual belief, again, not necessarily religion, right? Spiritual, um, had a 90% buffer against depression. Wow. That's fascinating. <laughs> I, I, you know, I prefer spirituality over religion, um, yeah. uh, personally, and it's, um, and the great deal of time I've spent there learning about, myself and my purpose my existence mm -hmm. here in this in you know in this corner of the world at this time it's um and many experiences in my life have shown me that there is something truly divine about being alive um and it's uh, it's something i have taken with me there's uh there's teachings in all religions that have some kind of overlapping um principles that are i want to say are useful they're common they're common in, in all of these religions and uh and they're useful to uh, people in general to practice and to uh, and to uh, understand it and to live it but beyond that uh there's obviously too many other things within religion that can become uh rather extreme depending on what you're looking at, right? Sure. Um, so I think uh, the way you're putting it is very interesting when we're considering that these are young people and generally young people are going to follow whatever their parents are following. So if they're Catholics, that's what they're uh, involved in. That's what the practice they engage in. If they're Christians of some form, uh, Judaism, Islam, whatever it may be, um, but 
why why do you make that split you say spirituality and it doesn't necessarily mean religion but when we when we know when we're looking at young people they're generally following whatever they've been raised with so mm. how do you make that distinction that it's like not necessarily religion but a a spiritual nature itself uh simply by definition all right so Religion consists of beliefs and worship of a god or gods, depending, right? So whether that's Hinduism or Christianity, right? Buddhism does not worship a god, but it is a religion if you're a monk. <laughs> but if you're practicing Buddhism, then it's a spiritual practice. You're not in the monastery following the precepts, right? You're in you're a householder, right? Meditating and applying the precepts in, in your life. So spirituality relates to the human spirit or the soul. And it's an inner process of connection to something much, much bigger than ourselves. Um, and it, it you know, really infuses us with a curiosity, creativity, compassion, clarity, right? And it offers us a sense of aliveness and interconnectedness, um, authenticity within, right? And there's also this sense of a listening at a profound level. Um, I refer to it as that still voice, which if I pay attention, if I'm listening, never guides me the wrong way, right? And some might say, oh, that's your imagination. Others might say, oh, that's God talking to you. And I just call it that still voice, right? That always knows which, which way to go and what to do, right? So religion is very formed. It's very constructed. Spirituality, not so. Spirituality is very open. Spirituality has many definitions, many approaches, many um, different um, orientations. I work with clients who are atheist and doggedly so, right? Right up to devout Christian uh, individuals. And across the spectrum, we can talk about spiritual matters. For an atheist, spirituality might be hiking in the woods um, or hiking the Appalachian Trail, right, in the mountains and being in nature or kayaking and being in nature. Nature is what gives them that sense of inner liveness. Nature and the smell of green and the flowers and the blue sun and, or I mean, blue skies and, you know, a sunny day and birds chirping and all of that extraordinary thing that nature is, right, brings that individual alive and, and makes all of their senses come online. Or they could be camping and they look up at the sky, millions and trillions of stars, right? And suddenly the cosmos is opened up to, you know, for them to see how can you not look up and go, wow. <laughs> How can you not be amazed by what's up there, right? Doesn't mean you believe in God, but that there's that source of infinity above, right? To 
you know, the other spectrum, end of the spectrum, are individuals who are devoutly religious and they have a spiritual sense, as opposed to being devoutly religious and dogmatic and not really attending to spirituality. There's a difference, right? So I always make this distinction because, um, because I do work with so many agnostic and atheist individuals, um, I feel it's important um, to, to clarify, right? Um, you know, spirituality is, uh, it, it, again, it's spirit, you know, it's that spirit thing that we just, it's indefinable. Um, and there's a famous quote from Carl Jung, who, when he communicated with Bill W., who started Alcoholics Anonymous with uh, Dr. Bob, um, said to Bill, uh, the, the, the the formula for successful sobriety and recovery for any alcoholic is spiritus contra spiritum. And that translates from the Latin to spirituality countering the effects of spirit alcohol. Right? So Jung was a pretty pretty wise man in my opinion and i think that he encapsulated it in in the most perfect way any human being could i think it's a um i think there's a lot to be taken from uh, many people of the past who were uh i think dismissed it's just uh, some people are just ahead of their time in their way of thinking um, and it takes a long time for science to catch up and the, uh, the applications that science would, uh, even consider attempting and, um, well into the future, it, it's going to be necessary to, to try different things because, uh, addiction is evolving mm -hmm. from, you know, perhaps a century ago, it was primarily alcohol and maybe some other substances. The substances have evolved. The and uh, the many forms of addiction have evolved too. And we're it's why I've spent a great deal of time working on education, mm -hmm. helping people understand that um, you know if you can learn about your biochemistry. You can understand why certain um, reactions are happening, why you're getting the stimulation that you're getting, why you even um, like it, and why you may prefer to repeat it again and again, sometimes in an abusive manner. Right. Uh, and it's not—it's not always something in incredibly destructive, right? You—you you could love to. Uh, bungee jump or skydive and just yeah. absolutely love the adrenaline and the rush and the, yeah. the risk taking that comes with uh, doing those activities um, and just want to do it again and again and again. Right. And, and, and you know, we can label that as maybe not destructive. It's, uh, it's not something that's going to destroy your life necessarily, but if you can understand why these things are happening, how these chemicals are working in your brain, um, you can become more empowered. And that is a goal for me, empowering people, um, helping the mind, body, and spirit to be a better version of themselves every single day, making better choices. When you're, when you're educated, you can make better choices. And uh, it's, it's, it's really strange to me that um, 
you know, they the saying goes like, uh, with age comes wisdom, but that's not always the case. <laughs> age doesn't equal wisdom because you can go through life and look back on a lifetime and say, you know, I'm not where I want to be in life. Why did this happen? Mm-hmm. And that, you know, that could be career and your financial position. That could be the relationships. It's, uh, it's many things that can uh, lead to somebody feeling that way, uh, lying on their deathbed and feeling many regrets. Um, so this is why there's so much emphasis on the education part. And it touches up on all of these things, uh, mm-hmm. not just understanding your body uh, and your brain and the activities, but understanding that, um, you know, life is long for those who are doing nothing and (laughs) life is short for those who are trying to achieve a great many things in that in that period of time while they still can and while they still have a voice to express it and to um and to reach as many people as possible so if there was uh if there was anything you can leave anybody with in terms of advice or Mm -hmm wisdom about your experiences in this realm of Mm. addiction treatment and recovery and these uh new models i think you called it ifs ifs internal family systems yep yeah by richard yeah richard schwartz developed it um yeah there's a lot um i mean first of all i'm a person in long-term recovery myself So um, in 1981, I um, uh, ceased all drug use uh, completely and entirely um, due to a very bad experience that I never wanted to have repeated. Um, And I made a commitment, a vow, a promise, um, and I said never again. And I never did. Um, The the detox, if you will, from uh, many years of abusing drugs was very painful not pleasant at all, um, lasted much longer than I thought it would have. Um, But each day that I went through it, I was reminded, this is what you've done to yourself, right? Um, And then as it started to get better, I had a glimmer of hope that, oh, this is how it can be going forward. Um, So that was in 1981. However, I had been drinking alcohol my whole my whole life. I grew up in Europe, and it's very normal for Europeans to give children wine with their meals. My first glass of wine was at the age of two. So I was off to a really good start, particularly since I had a parent who was an alcoholic and another parent who, um, let's say, had perhaps drank too much. Uh, and came from a line of alcoholics. So there was a DNA kind of setup there anyway, genetic setup. Um, so when I quit the drugs, um, the natural segue to not feel the emotions that were within me uh, was to drink. So my drinking career, although it had been pretty good up until 1981, um, but became extraordinary after 1981. And I would say that um, uh, my alcoholism really took off. Um, And uh, 
and it affected me in more ways than one. Uh, it affected me personally, it affected me professionally, but it affected me um, at, a, at a soul level. And um, on November 27th, 1994, um, I surrendered myself as a human being completely to whatever was more knowing, wiser, and um, more compassionate um, of an energy or an entity, whatever you want to call it, than I was. And um, <clears throat> the next day I walked into AA and I never looked back. And so I'm coming up on 29 years of sobriety, recovery, I would say not sobriety, recovery, um, which to me is extraordinary because left to my own devices, I would probably be dead right now. Or I would have been dead years ago. However, the saying goes, <laughs> I wouldn't be here right now, right? I would have died decades ago. Um, and as a result of those experiences, um, as time went on and my healing uh, underwent uh, really radical changes, extraordinary changes, because the, the backstory is not a very nice one. Uh, on a lot of different levels. And um, so little by slowly, I, I did the work, as we say. Not only did I immerse myself in a program of recovery uh, and a program that, frankly, I think is one of the foremost approaches that works, right? Um, which is Alcoholics Anonymous or any of the 12-step approaches. Um, but I also did the inner work. Um, so years of therapy, um, a lot of service work, um, and then a tremendous amount of time spent learning, educating. Um, and so that was going back to school, that was getting a master's, that was doing four years of doctoral studies, and then more work and more education and, you know, studying for licenses and doing everything I possibly could to put a life back together again. And um, all of that experience, all of that knowledge, and all of that understanding of addiction um, has culminated in a book called Rising, Rise in Recovery, The Spiritual Path for Healing Addiction. Um, the past 10 years have been 12. 12 years have been spent immersed in what is known as the neuroscience of spirituality or the neuroscience of theology, how spiritual practices can change the shape and the function of our brain and how spiritual practices can lend themselves to neuroplasticity, which is the brain's ability to heal itself. And I think that if we look at the damage that is done to the brain because of use of substances of any sort kind to excess, right? The fact that spiritual practices, um, connection, that sense of compassion, humanity, gratitude, all of those qualities of spirituality can heal the brain is remarkable. That concept is remarkable to me. But more importantly, or more astoundingly, is as I delved into the, the sort of the origins of spiritual practices, 
these date back to 1500, 2000 BCE, right? We find this in the Indus Valley where breath practices are taught and meditation practices are taught and yoga is taught, right? And now science has caught up with what ancient wisdom knew all along. Because now we can do fMRI scans and spec scans, and we can look into the brain while people are actually doing these practices, and we can see what happens in real time. Wow. So, you know, wow is right, right? Wow. And so some of the researchers out there who are doing this work um, have influenced me, have inspired me, and it is as a result of, of that body of science that defies a mechanistic approach completely. Um, and then, you know, we're now going into not only the neuro, the neuroscience of spirituality, but now quantum physics is bringing in spirituality as a means to define consciousness. So now we're really into a whole nother dimension, which I'm only just learning about, so I won't speak to it <laughs> necessarily. I'm still learning, not, not confident enough to speak to it, but the concepts are just mind boggling. So I wrote this book, which is coming out in April, 2024, Rise in Recovery. And in it, I just, I lay out, what is the science of addiction, right? What is the brain and what 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 is this neuroscience of addiction, which, you know, the, the disease model lays that out, right? But how, wait a minute, something something shifts along the way, right? And then I introduce what is spirituality, right? And and given that these definitions and these knowings, a wisdom of spirituality exist, then how do we create a spiritual life so that we can enhance our recovery to dimensions that we never thought possible before? And the rest of the book is all laid out with, you know, focusing on breath, meditation, body, nutrition, um, uh, chanting, singing, praying, writing your own prayers, all sorts of things like that. So, that's my, that's where I'm coming from, which is a past of incredible suffering. Uh, I'm not going to sugarcoat that one. Um, to a moment in time where things were so bad and imploded to such an extent that there was no more time for me. There was no, it was, if I didn't do something in that moment on the night of November 27th, 1994, I knew that there was going to be an end to my life. I knew it, in, it throughout. And the road back to being, to becoming a functioning human being again was tough, but worth every moment. And it wasn't done alone. My, my drinking career was very much alone not my recovery career. I, my recovery career has been surrounded by love and compassion and support and people and friends and, you know, a wonderful husband and, you know, four dogs and a, a beautiful, rich life, which is beyond my wildest dreams. It's beyond my wildest dreams. I could never have imagined that this would be me today, 30 years ago. Right. 
So I offer that as a message of hope to your listeners. Um, yeah, that's why I wrote the book, which my story is in there. So there's that. <laughs> well, I'll have you back on when it's released and um, we'll uh, help you promote it as best as we can. Um, it's a, there's a, there's a lot to unpack there. You know, the, the neurological aspects, the, the genetic aspects of addiction and, um, you know, going through generationally, uh, I mentioned this to you the last time we spoke, you know, I, I hear it a lot about addiction being pers a personality disorder of types. And I, I have never subscribed to it. I don't agree with that, uh, because, uh, of my own experiences in my own research and what that has always suggested to me is like, well, um, since we're, since we all like stimulation and we'll, we all have different flavors of that and what we will, uh, choose to abuse and not, it just depends on how much we like it, whether or not we like the dopamine it's creating for us. Um, but you know, I would say more importantly, the, the fact that, when we're using substances of any kind and maybe and sometimes it's not substances it's activities or whatever but we are uh, effectively changing the uh, the reward center of our brain there's this chemical change going on there and um over time it uh, i want you know i believe it just overtakes the individual completely and so th this is why it's uh, it, it becomes difficult to like move away from the abuse of something. It's like your brain just desires it so much; it's gotten so used to it. And you know, they say there's a, there's some professionals out there that say you know what, change your environment and you can you can improve those mm. behaviors. There's some truth to it, but it it leaves out a few. Uh, a few things in my opinion and one thing that you have added is the spirituality that i um i may have not attributed anything to until i'm hearing about this data for the first time and what they're seeing in the brain scans in real time that is so fascinating mm -hmm. uh, that i i would love to dive into that rabbit hole for a while <laughs> myself and see what they are discovering with that uh it's it's a com it's a complex issue and it's not going to go away anytime soon because we can get rid of substances, but good luck getting rid of a person's desire to feel good. That's absolutely right. Yeah. Amen on that one. Right. Because the human condition is so, so this is fascinating. The human condition is such that our, the lower part of our brain, what, what sometimes is referred to as the reptilian brain, right? We, we <laughs> have that from back in the dinosaur days right right yeah, it's a survival and survival and we were running yeah. around you know and we were you know trying to evade or you know run away from the saber-toothed tigers or whatever's left from the dinosaurs or whoever else was out there that was danger 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 so our brain at that time back then um all constantly scanned danger 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 right and and as a result, we either lived or we died, 
You know, you either saw the thing behind the bush that was going to come out and, and, and lunge at you uh, and run, uh, or you weren't paying attention and that was it. You were out of that species, right? So what's interesting, Mike, is that we still have that brain it, in the back of our skull. Not fully, but quite a bit. And all it does all day long is look for danger, look for danger, right? It's constantly seeking out what could go wrong. And that is termed negativity bias. Our brain is biased toward looking for what could go wrong. Well, in this day and age, and ever since really since 9-11, I would posit that the majority of us are looking constantly for what could go wrong, but they're not saber-toothed tigers, right? It's, you know, a random person walking in and shooting up the place. It's a, it, you know, it's a terrorist. It's this, that, or the third. So that part of the brain is still active, but because it is still active, another part of our brain seeks to soothe, to calm, because this goes 24-7, nonstop, nonstop. And this other part of the brain goes, enough, calm it down, enough with the, you know, danger, danger. So there's this built-in mechanism where we seek to soothe, we seek to calm, we seek to relax. And again, whether it's bungee jumping, God forbid the cord breaks, but if it's bungee <laughs> jumping or skydiving, I, I, I know someone who's in her 70s and she's uh, jumped out of an airplane 15 times, right? She loves it. She absolutely loves it. And she's very good at it, right? You couldn't pay me enough money to jump out of an airplane, but I do other things that are equally exciting, right? Maybe just not so dangerous. Dangerous. Um, so it's one of the reasons these spiritual practices calm the brain and soothe this negativity bias, right? Um, and I would be more than happy to send you the names of these researchers and authors and, and scientists who are doing all this work, because I think this, this you know, in terms of educating, I think, I think we, we, all of us, this this population of ours in this country, we really need to be educated about um, fundamental uh, realities about our human condition, right? Our human existence. Um, and I think the more that we know and are educated, just as you said, the better choices we would make right? The better choices kids would make. Um, and therefore, we would have better lives, there would be less suffering, right? So uh, it's a hope. Yeah, it, it's, it, a hope. It, it's my it's hope. A hope, you know, <laughs> so it's the, my hope. <laughs> well, this leads me into this next part here. Um, and I don't know how much you've heard about maps and what they're doing with uh, psychedelics and things mm -hmm. of that nature. I've talked about this for the last several years, and um, I've experienced this many times using psychedelics, particularly mm -hmm. psilocybin. I don't know how you know. Uh, I don't know if I would even put it on the on the same spectrum of uh, an extreme psychedelic, but its healing properties are magnificent. 
okay. and I've, and I've experienced it. And um, the the creation or the science showing just how it's helping the brain create new like roadmaps, new neural pathways. Sometimes we have broken pathways uh, and it just kind of rewires things. There's, there's several instances I have been able to make profound discoveries in myself and implement changes. I've talked about this a great deal. I mean, I probably have easily 10 hours of content just around this because in 2018, in 2019, it really became a thing. People were beginning to explore this. Mm-hmm. So if we look at today and how uh, the MAPS organization and all the research conducted, the studies, the private clin- uh, clinical trials that are going on that are small in scope, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, so small that you have to apply and they'll evaluate your case, see if you are a good fit for it. Uh, but they are treating um, not just depression, not just anxiety or PTSD, but as uh, but addiction as well. Mm-hmm. And there's something very interesting going on here uh, to to say like we can use substances to help someone get off of substances. Seems kind of crazy, right? You would think this is mm-hmm. ca- counterintuitive, but um, I think it takes a mature person to uh, explore these things on their own. I I'm blessed enough that I I have no I've not developed anything to want to use psilocybin aggressively um frequently I just use it medicinally um mm-hmm. but there's studies here where they have uh tracked the mycelium growth of mushrooms of the networks that it creates uh there's other studies out there showing how when grown in the wild it helps all the uh, life that grows on that land to communicate better with each other, which is like, what the hell is this? What is going on here? They're, they're, they're just things that we couldn't have ever imagined in the past, but we're able to quantify in some manner today that it is going on. So um, I had someone leave a comment on one of my videos when I was discussing this. It's like, it was saying what the mushroom does for itself the mycelium with the networks, what it does for itself, it's doing for us when we ingest it in our brains. Mm, Um, Interesting. Interesting. So so I have one very specific story, 2006, I think it was. And we took a great deal of mushrooms. We smoked pot all night. We smoked a pack of cigarettes or more easily. um, And we had a great time. But that night I rewired my brain. And and I distinctly remember this because while I was on the end of the experience and ready to get to bed, I was hyper-focused on the feelings I had about the cigarettes, right? The the feeling I had in my chest, it was chest tightness, um, hard to breathe, pain, and all these associated things. For whatever reason, I was feeling them. I don't know. It's odd because normally we can smoke cigarettes and we wouldn't necessarily feel these things. Um, so uh, the impact uh, is never really there. But in this instance, I I was. Mm. And that night before I fell asleep, I put together 
a list of ideas and and reasons why there was no benefit to smoking cigarettes. And so I started listing them in my mind. There's no benefit. It doesn't do anything for me. There's, it only costs me money. It, uh, so as I went through this list, I woke up the next day and it was as if a switch had been turned off. There was no desire. I have witnesses. I didn't touch a cigarette for a year. I woke up the next morning and I didn't touch tobacco for an entire year. So it's, um, it, it, that, that experience stuck with me to reevaluate and re-explore psilocybin for medicine in 2017 when I was going through extreme depression and, mm-hmm. um, and would not, and, and would, and would just not go back to the old life of, um, abusing substances to cope with my problems. Right. Uh, at this point, I already had my first child, um, mm-hmm had a lot of responsibility so like that was not an option cannot go back to excessive drinking cocaine abuse like none of those things are were an outlet anymore we cannot do that uh so i needed a new approach to at least begin to identify what the you know why am i feeling this way where is this all coming from and through the three years of doing that i mean i think within the first year i was making leaps and this is without counseling or anything. This uh, it requires a, a very skilled person in self-reflection and thought exercises and many things. Um, so uh, some people would require that counseling. I yeah. thankfully didn't need it, and I just helped myself through it. And all along the process, there was many things that came to light. That's one thing: is that suffering is very common in life. We're all going to suffer. And so we need to develop tools to to be able to handle them. Like tomorrow will bring new challenges. You're you're not going to escape suffering. You're not going to escape issues. Like, yes, we may not be um, hiding from saber tooths anymore or, uh, or trying to survive against another tribe that uh, only kills on contact, right? right? Um, but there's different things going on in modern day that is still re- requires that part of the brain for us to survive and for us to um, uh, to uh, be able to thrive as well. It's uh, it's maybe much smaller than it was because the dangers are different today, mm-hmm. um, but it's very real. So that that's that was an important one, like. I may have been depressed a, a great deal because of what I was going through, trauma, abuse, many other things. But more importantly, uh, it was the feeling of hopelessness because of the amount of suffering. Mm-hmm. Just feeling like, you know, I hate the way I feel and I feel depressed and my life isn't going the way that it that I would want it to go. I'm not where I want to be. Why is this happening to me? So all of these things were going on. And um through the dosing, it enabled my brain to get into a space to reflect and to think, to identify and uh, take action, which is the most important. You got to take action. And the biggest realization was that is like, no, you need to take accountability for yourself, for your actions, for your choices. Um, don't hold off what can be done today for tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, always take responsibility 
You can't point the finger at anybody else, especially, let's say, with addiction. There is, there is nobody at fault here. Like, you are the one responsible for making that choice. You got to take full responsibility, take the um, take the consequences that, that go with it, learn from it, grow, become stronger. Why? Because tomorrow brings new challenges. So mm. this, this is part of my story. I love sharing it with people because it gives a new perspective on mm. psilocybin, a new perspective on counseling and depression and all of these things, substance abuse. Um, remember when we first talked and one of the things I had said is it, it does take a mature person to realize like, you, you know what, there's nothing wrong with wanting to get high. And, and you said it best is like, because we're in constant fear of, yes right? That part of the brain. So another part of the brain compensates by desiring to soothe and to calm and find some balance of relaxation. So the the idea that came about over the years is like, there's actually nothing wrong with wanting to seek comfort or get high on something. It just, you have to be wiser in your choices. Do you choose destructive things? Or do you choose things that are manageable and you can be responsible? One great mentor I had post-addiction, he left me with this. He's like, if if you're going to be addicted to something, you should consider being addicted to accomplishing your goals. And that that stuck with me. So I'll, I'll give you a minute to like process everything I said. I don't, I, I don't know how familiar you are with the, the MAPS organization and what they're doing with ketamine, MDMA, psilocybin, right. the applications. But what are your thoughts on this kind of treatment? Sure. I, yes, so much, right? Um, I don't know that I can cover it in a minute, Mike. But um, No, no, take your time. There's, I, don't, there's no I don't know the MAPS organization per se. Um, uh, and would love to, you know, have you send me any information that you have on that. Um, because of a lot of confluence of circumstances, um, I have um, crossed paths with or know uh, individuals um, who uh, ascribe to the trip to the use of like MDMA for extreme post-traumatic stress disorder in the military. Right now, right away, that statement is groundbreaking. Wait a minute. The military is using MDMA for their soldiers who are suffering with extreme PTSD, not an entity that you would think would use such a substance. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so that uh, years and years ago, um, I became privy to some to some work that was being done, and I was absolutely blown away by it. Because in for me, I mean, I, you know, I again, I'm very open about it. But 1981 was the last time I took an illicit drug of any kind, sort, shape, or form. I mean, you know, unless I've had surgery and the doctor gives me three pills for you know three days to get over the knee surgery, that's it, right? Most I take is a Tylenol. Um, but I really respect the work that's being done with. MDMA, psilocybin, um, you know, other substances that produce 
real, not imagined experiences. Ayahuasca is an, is another one, right? My caveat or my the way I hold this world of using um, uh, psychedelic substances to heal is that so many individuals um, perhaps do not hold the respect for the substance that it deserves. So, you know, I hear about these gatherings in New York where you pay 200 bucks for a yoga mat and a bucket, you take ayahuasca, you're sick to your stomach, and then you trip out all night long. <laughs> if that's your thing, you know, okay, right? But I also know um, that there are individuals who have taken extraordinary travels to Peru and worked with really bona fide shaman and, you know, engaged in the ayahuasca or haushka experience and their life has transformed. Gabor Mate talks about this, uh, his experiences with ayahuasca. And, um, uh, and I've known individuals who uh, were literally at the end of their rope. They'd done five different treatment centers. They uh, relapsed a hundred times, whatever, you know, I'm exaggerating, but whatever it was, it was they were at the end of their rope and, um, and went to Peru and their lives changed forever. They had an experience that altered their life forever. Now, in my world, that's a spiritual experience, right? Um, your experience um, that night when you listed, you know, it's like your self just said, well, here are all the reasons not to smoke cigarettes. And you rewired your brain. And that was it. Boom. Never, you know, right? Um, so I think there is very valid science. I think um, that under... Um, not controlled, but safe conditions um, and with great wisdom and great respect, um, it can be a stepping stone, right? Um, not necessarily, maybe for addiction, maybe not, I don't know. I don't think enough has been researched around it, although a lot has been researched, particularly for depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, that kind of thing. And the results... Um, that are coming out of that research are impressive, right? Um, but when I look at substances like um, psilocybin um, or peyote um, or ayahuasca, those are very spiritual me medicines, right? So the Hopi Indians use peyote in sacred ritual, right? Um, mushrooms are used in, indig in indig indigenous uh, cultures and uh, for ritual and sacredness, right? Ayahuasca the same. So I see it as a very spiritual opening of our heart, but also our mind, right? The expansion of our consciousness. Um, and I always, you know, for a lot of different reasons, um, 
you know, I include the caution that, you know, we can't go overboard on it, um, but to use it for the purpose that it is there, you know. So, um, yeah, that's how I unpack that in less than three minutes. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, that's that's well said, and you're absolutely right about that. Um, yeah. it, it, it is an important thing to note, like, respect the plant. Yeah. It's um, it has a purpose, you know. As a teenager, we we would party with uh, psilocybin. Um, it was only as an adult where I really needed um, uh, care and yes. uh, attention to detail, and just to be able to uh, pause that chaos in my mind to get into a headspace that can filter out many things. It just it it in the sense of calm that you feel towards the end. Like yes. so, sometimes that's what I tell my wife when I take it. I'm like, I just want, I just don't want to feel anything today. I don't want to feel anxious. I don't want to feel hope. I don't want to feel excitement. I don't want to feel angry. Like I, I don't want to feel anything particularly. Mm. And, um, and it's because there's so many attachments, right? Mm. Um, as an individual, we're attached to outcomes, hoping that this will happen today or hoping that that won't happen today. And it's like, you have these things pulling you in all these directions, all these emotional triggers. And there are just days I'm like, I just don't want to feel any of these things. And I'm just okay with being here in this moment yeah. and nothing else. Right, right. So maybe that's a, that is very spiritual, perhaps, yeah. but... Yeah. Um, it, you're you're right to say that the uh, the research is impressive. You would mm -hmm. never think the military would explore this, but perhaps they're desperate themselves. Like nothing else is working. <laughs> it's you know, true. Like, All right, yeah. give, you know, give them MDMA. What else can yeah. we? What else know? could right? What's the yeah. best that could happen? There you go. And the so, best that is happening is that the results are really impressive. You know. Um, so I think there's a lot to be said for it. Um, and always that caveat of, um, respect the medicine, respect the origins and also respect the purpose, you know, yes. um, be clear on the purpose, you know, what is, what is the intention here, right? You know, in yoga, we, we set our intention before, you know, we begin our asana series. And for the longest time, I was like, yeah, well, may it, you know, hope this, hope I get to put my nose to my knees, right? That's my, <laughs> right? and uh, as I grew older, you know, in the yoga world, and I started very, very young. Um, I was about 15 years old when I first started yoga. Um, you know, I understood more, oh, the intention is not may I put my nose to my knees. The intention is may I be present in this sacred body, in this sacred moment, you know, and, and to generate that kind of an awareness in, in this moment, in this time, right now, right here, right, um, is a very powerful mind state to achieve, um, which is one of the reasons I love yoga. Uh, but um, if we have an intention uh, to heal, to enlighten ourselves, you know, through a medicine, then we really have to be very clear 
Very, very clear. Um, Gabor Mate tells an incredible story uh, in conferences, and I, you know, I won't do this story justice at all. But he went to uh, uh, Peru for uh, to spend time with a shaman, and uh, there were some other people there, and um, everybody, you know, stated their intention. What be- prior to taking this medicine, this is what my intention is. And there was a woman there who um, uh, her intention was to see clearly, to see through, and to gain some wisdom about about a particular situation. And uh, so fine, everybody takes the Arihashka. And um, he does his thing. He's noticing, you know, this, that, and the other, but he's in his world. The next day, uh, this woman who had had the intention to see clearly, to see through, if you will, right, was complaining bitterly. Well, all I saw was an elephant and I didn't get anything out of this stupid situation. I paid all this money to come down here and all I saw was an elephant. So Gabor asks her, well, what kind of elephant did you see? And she explains, well, it was half man, half elephant. I don't know what. And um, of course, she was describing Ganesha. And Ganesha is the Hindu god of wisdom and breaking through obstacles. So, (laughs) So he came to her. He was there to give her, you know, her, her intention. But she was too busy focused on the fact that it's an elephant, not an answer to my problem. I think it's a beautiful illustration of how to use the medicine very wisely, um, but also to be very educated and aware and, you know, walk into it with eyes wide open as well. And to be open to that which arises. And this is where quantum comes in, right? In terms of consciousness, we don't know what consciousness is out there. And what might come in to our experience? It's it's very divine. I mean, I've I have I haven't been alive that long as an adult, but I mean, I've experienced many things that are like this is just it's perfect, it's wonderful, it's beautiful, and That's these right. things keep happening in my life, and I uh, and it's uh, it's a combination of both. Go- yeah. A lot of good things happen. Sometimes bad things happen, and you're going through these waves. And yes. I uh, I think. Um, is learning to appreciate the good and the bad, the yin and the yang of the of existence. It's uh, you can't have one without the other. Okay. Uh, you know, the respect and the intention is very important. I totally agree with that because um, so certainly, if you don't know why you're using this, well, like what potential outcome can you expect? You shouldn't have any expectations at all at that point. Um, and it, I feel like it's definitely a double edged sword, <laughs> in the sense that. When you're using these things, uh, let's say you are very educated and you're informed and you have experience and uh, you understand your intention, you have the respect and everything else, um, it will reveal you to yourself, perhaps for the first time ever in your life. And you may not like what you see. Um, I think this is important even for addiction recovery as like, um, you know, look in the mirror, don't turn away. Um, this is what you have become. It's not who you are. That's right. And it's uh, and you can change. You can make better choices. And it's uh, as you said, it's 
a long road. It's a journey to to recovery. And I, you know, I don't know if I can agree with like you're, you're forever in recovery or or that uh, uh, you know once an addict, always an addict. Like perhaps it's that could be true in some instances, but I feel like it's dynamic and that brain chemistry is very unique in individuals where some uh, can completely change and Mm -hmm. maybe sometimes be able to indulge, but do it responsibly just, uh, and I suppose those circumstances vary so much, right? Um, Individual, right? It's in each individual, right? Each individual, it's like everybody has their own fingerprint. And so everybody has their own um, journey, right? Especially in recovery, you know, um, Uh, Some, like I, I, you know, I work with clients who will go through um, a period of time of abstinence, you know, and then they'll say, you know what, so when we first started meeting, I was drinking five days a week, five or six, you know, drinks a day. And now we're we're, not bad. (laughs) (laughs) It's not terrible. Yeah, not terrible, but not bad. Um, You know, and here we are now. I've I've been working with you, Kimberly, for five, six months, and I I haven't had anything to drink in that time. And, you know, I, I think I would like to try going out to dinner with friends and have a glass of wine. And my response is, try it. You know, try it. Um, I'm not going to tell someone, oh, no, you don't know, you know, you're an alcoholic, because only we can say, only we can diagnose ourselves, right? So I know for me, if I was to pick up a drink, everything that I have would be gone that fast. I just know, I know in my, in my bone marrow, I know, and I'm not willing to give it up. I like what I got. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you, you value what you have. And, I really uh, do. Yeah, and I've worked yeah. hard for it too. You know, really, really worked hard for it. So I'm not willing to give it up. In the case of a client, you know, difficult time in their life, binge drinking. Yes, were they an alcoholic? You know, problematic maybe. Yeah, you know. Were they able to have one glass at dinner? Yes. Did they then go on a bender? No, that tells you a lot. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's uh, that's an aspect of like self control and understanding like value, like having a deeper sense of you know self worth and uh, understanding what you value. Like your priorities have changed as uh, as you go through treatment or recovery and uh, you begin to identify what you actually value and when you can uh and when you can quantify that you understand that these things matter more to you than getting plastered on a weekend uh yeah. for year ever since i met my wife and i sobered up and changed my life for the sake of making sure that our relationship can actually blossom in a healthy way not mm-hmm. revolving around drug use or alcohol use we we have this saying of like it's funny how people bring in the new year with a hangover right? <laughs> and i'm like that's one hell of a way to start the new year you know yeah, you wake right? up feeling like shit and then what you go and you eat like shit because you, you want fatty <laughs> foods and whatever the next day to absorb the alcohol it's just like a terrible start to a new year 
<laughs> so for you know so, so for, since like 2015 like we haven't done any of that we just don't do it and uh, it's not a priority for us and occasionally we might have a drink right. um, so very rarely but we understand what we value and it's not like the feeling that we get from alcohol right um, we can value the uh, the little bits of relaxation it may promote in the brain and in the body but um beyond that it's poisonous beyond that it's destructive and uh it doesn't present anything valuable into our lives so we just don't bring it into our lives so remember that story i told you about reflecting and learning about where my alcoholism kind of developed yeah it's it took me a very long time to identify that and i realized it uh in 2019 and i'm like i can't believe this is where it stemmed from so my parents divorced and um and they both became heavy drinkers just going through their difficult time and they're just they're just human humans make mistakes and and it's a very hard life like life is hard for everybody um, in varying degrees but whenever i was with my mom and she was drinking it was in situations where there's friends and dinner and whatever right and the contrast was when my dad was drinking he was alone and miserable Mm. in his apartment and this is where it became clear to me as I was kind of digging and poking around these experiences, the realization of the excitement that I'd have prior to finding out we're having a party and there's definitely going to be alcohol there. So the association of having a good time and alcohol being present were bound together as Mm. one and so as a child, like you were saying, as young children, they absorb, they pick up on the frequency, they understand there's something wrong. They, And so this is a behavior I picked up very, very young, and it manifested into alcohol abuse, uh, excessive drinking, and only in the in the idea that it's like, well, we're having a good time. This is what we do when we have a good time. It's party time. Yeah. And, it, and it's crazy. It's, it's fun. Let's have fun. <laughs> right, let's have fun. Like, uh, yeah. and it's a crazy thought to think uh, that that had affected me as young as five and six years old. Unbelievable. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. <laughs> and then for you, uh, right? You were yeah. exposed to the same thing as at two for years me, old. Two years old, I sat under an olive tree in an old uh, Italian farmer's lap while he cut bread and sausage, and I felt safe. Totally safe. No one was going to hurt or harm me in any way, shape, or form. Right? This man was there. And, you know, and that was wine and cheese and sausage and bread, and we're under the olive tree in a beautiful idyllic setting while insanity was going on in the house. Wow. Yeah. Sanity. So that was my safe space. And that first sip was like, and it wasn't watered down. I might add Mr. Bertolino liked his vino. (laughs) 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 Strong. So, you know, and um, you know, that I would, that was it. That was it. Yeah, so you never, you never know. <laughs> yeah, this, Gosh, this is, 
Yeah, this is really, wow. I'm just like, I'm really, um, I'm so, I, this, what a, what a wonderful experience talking with you. I'm filled with gratitude and uh, Me too. just that sense of like, wow, you know, thank you. Me yeah. too. I, I'm, I'm very <laughs> grateful to, to have had almost two hours of your time. I know you're busy. Uh, we'll, we'll end this here and, um, we'll talk again soon, probably in the coming so. months and trade notes and share stuff. This yeah. is, this is an area that really requires a lot of work and people need access to, uh, different methods for healing. It's, uh, I think it goes without saying, um, traditional Western medicine, has there has its applications but it's falling short in many ways and in some ways it has uh poured fuel into the fire with the opioid um ep epidemic that's been going on 20 years um and so there there needs to be access to information and stories and uh sharing of different uh, approaches that people can use and to not be afraid to mm. at least try, you know, uh, mm. you won't know until you try. And this is what's amazing about your story with the people you've worked with and just like their willing, their unwillingness to try and to, uh, you know, the purpose is for rehabilitation. Would you not be open to trying almost anything that is uh, considered safe? Like it's harmless to do yoga, to teach them yoga. It's harmless to have I a a conversation for 30 minutes while they wait for their suboxone or their methadone, which are, are terrible drugs. In my opinion, they have applications, but a lot of people <laughs> report problems after using them. Yeah. Oh, there's a whole nother, that's a whole nother discussion for another time. <laughs> Don't get me started. Right. Um, Cause those are abused just as much. Right. But right. yeah, I mean, I think, um, I, you know, I think, and this is why I love what you do, you know, on your show. And, and I'm very grateful, um, for you giving me this opportunity to just talk about issues and topics that are so critically important, you know, um, and, and bringing some, um, some food for thought, right, to your audience. There's much to consider. There's much to consider. And I think, um, uh and 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 contemplating and talking and talking through is um is really important in our day and age as, as opposed to talking at or oh i disagree with you completely so therefore you don't exist that kind of thing you know that divisiveness i think when we have conversations like this about very difficult topics um and, and are willing to look at what might be possible, right? Um, that's when we start finding solutions. That's when we start opening doors, right? And I think that's where we, we also connect to something that is really without question greater than ourselves. You know, there's some other kind of an energy that comes in and says, let me help you, right? Yeah. Let me help you, Kimberly and Mike, in this discussion and, and come up with, you know, different potential ideas or whatever. Well, what if there were 20 of us? Oh, let me come in and help you even expand that consciousness further, you know? So yeah. at least that's that's what happens in my world. <laughs> Ener you know, energy is real. And I feel like we're beginning to um, 
somewhat understand it like the the principle principles of thermodynamics and everything uh lays it out for us that energy does not disappear we see energy transfer and that's you know that's how it works it could be heat it could be uh, many forms of energy uh, but it's very real even within the human spirit and it's something i've experienced many times to where like i am a believer um, you can't really openly talk about this, uh, especially let's say several years ago. People just look at you like you're crazy, uh, or the, some like new age guru type of individual. But um, you can only you can you can only appreciate it if you've experienced it many times, so that you can contemplate on it and say, uh, "There's something here. This is this is real." Even even though you can't touch it, it's not tangible. You can't see it but something magical is happening. That's where I can't, I come to the, the thought of like, there is absolutely something divine about existence. This spirit uh, of, of humanity and what we have uh, today is so special uh, and so vastly different than what people were experiencing, let's say a century ago that spiritual connection just may have not existed in the same fashion. Um, and because there's, there's still a lot of suffering today, but a century ago, lifespans were much shorter. Disease was prevalent. There was just a lot of other struggles, but nowadays we can live longer. Yes, we have different problems, but, uh, but we're living long enough to be able to experience and to learn about things. These uh, incredible thing called the internet as we share a great deal of information i mean and that's and that's you know uh, an understatement it's it's such a huge library and database of information available that moves at the speed of light all across the globe um you know i i wonder at times like how far away are we you know, 50 years, 100 years before, like, really attaining some form of enlightenment as mm -hmm. uh, uh, for like humanity as a whole. We, yeah. of course, we still got to deal with a lot of the problems, the the many issues of greed and the many issues of corporate controls and censorship and government. And uh, many of these things are still problematic, mm -hmm. depending on where you look. I mean, even, you know, corruption, even here, we're seeing blatant corruption. Where in the past, it's more secretive and they try to hide it. It's like it's, it's like just right out in the open. They're like, we don't care anymore. Whether you're left or right, we don't, we don't, we don't care. It's like we're just going to put it out there. Um, so, so there's, you know, many things to address. But could it be a century from now, two centuries? If we survive long enough, I suppose we'll find out. It's very important to me to live as healthy as possible. I want to live beyond a hundred because I want to experience many of these things that uh, that are to come. Uh, it's, yeah. it's the hope, the hopeful, uh, you know, mindset in me. Oh, absolutely, the positive mindset. Well, I'm right with you. I hope hope to live to be that old, and hope that you know I get to see some of the really miraculous things that I think are going to unfold uh in humanity um 
I really hope that I'm here to see it. So, um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Mike, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Really an honor to be with you and to your with your guests today. Um, I can't the, thank you for having me. The pleasure is all mine. It really, it's, um, uh, you know, it's a privilege for me more than anything else. So I appreciate your time. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm.